Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. The 1975 anti-diet book with the killer title, Fat is a Feminist Issue, became and still is a bible for millions of women. Its author, Susie Orbach, has since continued to write about women's relationships to their bodies and to food, on public and private emotions, on friendships and love, on therapy. She has consulted for the World Bank and Britain's NHS, is involved with the worldwide campaign endangeredbodies.org, which tackles body hatred, and brings the insights of the psychotherapist's consulting room to the wider public through her writing and broadcasting, all of which she discusses with Carol Bew. We hope you enjoy this session. I'm Carol Bew from the Women's Bookshop and a long-time trustee of this marvellous festival which has grown and grown and become one of the biggest and best festivals in the world. So much so that we can attract the likes of Susie Orbach and Jeanette Winterson, um, who, as you know, are going to be talking together as well. Um, Susie Orbach is... A psychotherapist, that's been her, her basic training and, and her everyday work life. But she is so much more than that. And I think we probably have to begin this discussion by talking about Fifi, as, as she calls it. Um, because Fat is a Feminist Issue was published in 1978 originally, Susie. And it is a book that made her famous, but it also changed the lives of thousands and thousands, probably millions of women. And coming at that time in that, that wave, that second wave, as it's known, of feminism, um, it was a highly significant book. So can we talk about Fifi to start with? And you've written a new introduction in, for 2.16, so things have changed incredibly. Yes. Um, I've had to update it all the time. Right. Um, partly because when I wrote it, I felt well, rather evangelical and like a first-time author and hopeful that the words that I was writing, which really were the words of the women that I was working with, would change the world. And of course, it didn't, certainly not for the better. And everything that I wrote about then has increased and amplified so that instead of bodies and eating and fat and thin being problematic for a short period of certain women's lives, it's now really eaten into the childhoods of our children, so that six-year-olds are already transacting in the playgrounds around being too fat. And there are women in old-age homes who've never felt that they could eat okay, who've been tortured and anguished about their bodies for a very, very long time. So Fifi, unfortunately, has stayed in print. Wow, um, yes. Speaking to different generations um, and teaching me more and more about the nefarious practices of the industries that make sure that we feel unhappy and disturbed and distressed in our bodies. I want to talk more about those various industries later. Um, its main emphasis, in, in fact, as a feminist issue, the main emphasis is on compulsive eating. And I was particularly interested rereading it all these years later because I'd forgotten a lot of it. I haven't read it all these years later. <laughs> I don't think I could bear to, actually. No. It doesn't why, mean I don't. Why not? Why not? It's very interesting that. I think I'm probably 
Will I have the will I be compassionate towards my younger self? Will I find it interesting? Will I want to change the words? Will I say well I wouldn't say that now, even though I think it, it was it was and has accuracy. But I don't know. I'm frightened of it. Perhaps there's somebody here who can help me out with that. <laughs> well, one of the things I was interested in, um, I think particularly because I, I have a friend, a close friend, who has a very large daughter, and she has been a large, well, she's still a youngish woman, but she has been large um, since she was a teenager, and I believe she will remain a, a large woman. And so I was very interested in all the things you had to say in here about the reasons why women, some women, need to be large. Can you talk about that? I, I think what I was really talking about was the symbolic meanings of large, the refusal to, or, or largeness as a way of negotiating the horrors and the attacks on our bodies of visual culture. And that the idea of being large, although on the one hand it's um, disliked by the culture, is a way to try to take up a different kind of space and to challenge certain ideas. And it's a way to express discomfort with the way in which femininity is represented as always on, always having to appear, always having to look at yourself from the outside, always having to be aware in a critical way. And that if you can think of yourself or be large, you somehow imagine that you're exempt from that. Of course, we're no, no longer exempt from that because there's such hatred in our culture of fatness as though there's something wrong with it as opposed to just a statement of size. But is that me making noise? Is it one of my... No, I don't No, okay. Um, so, in that sense... Fatness or being fat signifies many, many different things today. It, it might signify being on the other side of the tracks, but it also might signify, I won't have you take me as I'm supposed to be. You will have to engage with me. You'll have to find out who I am. You'll have to respect that perhaps I'm vulnerable under these layers. Perhaps you need to get to know me rather than project onto me the ideas of womanhood and sexuality that we visit on girls So I and don't women. fit the image. So you're going to have to dig further to, to, to get to the real me underneath. Yeah. But I think the thing about compulsive eating is, compulsive eating is can appear at any size. You can be a skinny compulsive eater. You can pass for a, a, a kind of normal, that's called today, compulsive eater. Or you can be fat and be a compulsive eater. Mm -hmm. the, the scourge of... Um, or the, the horror around the obesity debate is that it doesn't actually understand anything to do with how women and men are eating these days. And it just assumes that somebody who sort of passes and looks like they're supposed to look has no kind of eating problem. And that's not my experience at all. Right. So I wanted to ask you about the obesity epidemic. What is your opinion about the obesity epidemic? Well... I do think there is a lot of obesity around, and if we're going to use that term which was invented by the, or instituted by the International Obesity Task Force in the 90s, which was um, a coalition of diet and food and health companies who, who really wanted to create something called Obesity Inc. so they could sell their products. Um, and... Because I don't know whether any of you were around as long as I was, but when I was a kid, it was small, medium, and large frame. 
we, we didn't have a BMI. We didn't have that kind of, and the whole notion of obese was a, was a, was, was not that significant in, before. Now it is true that people are much bigger, so there's, there's not, not, that does need to be addressed, but the very industries that are part of creating that were the industries sitting on that international obesity task force. They were the food and diet industries, many of them producing the non-food foods that are, are delivered all over the world to people and affect our metabolisms in really dangerous ways. So I don't think the real issue is obesity. I think there is an issue about eating. I think the public health emergency we have is disturbed eating and our disturbed relationship to our bodies, whatever size we are. And that if we started from that vector, instead of creating a stigma about one particular size or another, we might be able to think through the madness in which people don't know how to eat when they're hungry, they're frightened of food, food becomes a very complicated, magical um, sight for them being, on the one hand, very nourishing, and on the other hand, very destructive and scary, and in which food schemes of all kinds. I mean, the latest in Britain, I don't know if it's come here, because actually you probably have clean food, but now we have a thing called clean food after the dirty food. And um, clean food, I guess, is something to do with modern Asian, New Zealand, Australian cuisines. Um, but with no grains whatsoever. And I suppose by making that kind of border and making the grain foods really bad, like, you know, then you can safely eat the other stuff inside of it. But it doesn't address the problem of being frightened of food or of compulsive eating. Well, the same thing has happened with fat and sugar, hasn't it? Correct. Correct. So that you've got everything's fat free. 90, 99% yes, fat free. Yes, it's fat free, but then they have to send you the fat they have to send you the fat back either through ice cream. I mean, after all, there's only three percent fat in milk, for goodness sake. That's not a lot of fat. Um, or they've got to bulk up the food with a plasticizer. They've got to do something to give you favor. And if you are even a dieter, which is something that I don't think is a very useful thing to be because the recidivism rates are in the ninety percent. But um because obviously, if dieting worked, you'd only have to do it once. But if you are a dieter, there'd be no money for the for Weight Watchers, and they ha they really are a growth industry. But um, if you are a dieter, the all the, the major Swedish study shows, particularly for menopausal women, that those who have full fat products in their diet are the ones whose weight is the most stable and low than the ones who extract the fat and then search for it elsewhere or whose bodies don't use the food properly. But the latest thing is now that fat's okay yes, and sugar's, sugar's not. Yeah. But when I was a kid, steak was okay and pasta was bad and cheese was good and then, I, then the, all of those things were terrible. I mean, look, I think we're sophisticated enough now to know that refined sugar isn't the greatest, but it's not poison. I mean, it, it really isn't. And... It's really terrible that we're turning into poison. I remember when my kids were at school and they'd have a, a biscuit coming out of, in their lunchbox and they were told they weren't allowed to have it. Or people, now I don't know if you have this here, I hope not, but in nursery schools, instead of a cake on your birthday, you know those Japanese plastic models of food? That is what they have in the nursery school now. I kid you not. So that they're really demonized. They're making it as attractive as heroin, really. Because they're, they're saying there's something so scary here that you can't engage it. Instead of saying, yeah, 
have some, have some of this, but probably back it up with some more complex carbohydrate or some protein. Yes. So who owns the diet companies? Well, I'm not sure exactly who does in New Zealand, um, but basically SlimFast is a Nestle company, I think, or is it a Unilever? Oh, I'm sorry. Jet lag. It doesn't matter exactly which. You've already named Nestle and Unilever. And Weight Watchers is, was owned by Heinz. I don't think they are anymore. Their biggest expansion now is into Asia because they've, they've saturated the European and North American markets. Not so true with actually um, Weight Watchers because Oprah has gone on board and she's now their latest evangelist. Um, I think she made 65 million on her shares overnight. Um, so it's the companies making money, but it's selling the notion of the perfect body, although it doesn't call it that anymore. It calls it wholesome eating or something. And it sort of steals some of the images and rhetoric from body activists to represent it in their own stuff, but their own um, manufactured foods are manufactured foods. They're not real foods. But they have managed to convince the Japanese that they are fat, They've managed to convince Koreans that they are fat. They've managed to convince people that they need to be on a diet who's, who actually have no history of it and have always eaten rather well. So you've actually moved into that whole issue now of globalization and what has happened not only with the food industry but the cosmetic and, you know, the cosmetic surgery industry. Well, yes, I mean. Now, worldwide, we have to conform. Well, and, you know, part of what we've done is to export body hatred all over the world as a part of late capitalism, isn't it? It's our great gift to the world. I mean, not only do we know how to pollute rivers and, and do terrible things, but we do actually know how to produce body hatred in people and how to give it to other countries on a plate. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that i was been looking at is what goes on in South Korea, and I was very familiar with the 50% of teenage girls having the eyelid insertion to look westernized. But what I wasn't aware of was that um, jawbone shaving is so prominent. In Korea. In South Korea. Mm. That there are sculptures made with um, jawbone, the, the, the jawbone bone that's been shaved off, put in glass... Um, cages on display to show what a successful operation this is, and um, another very and it's a Singapore, Korea, our plastic surgery. Um, what do you call them? The tourist places. That's where you go. Whether you if, when you need a new labia, because let's face it, our labias are all wrong, right? <sighs> You know, and the National Health Service in England actually is opposed to giving you a new labia because they, they do know that, that your labia is okay the way it is and they're supposed to come in many different sizes and shapes with things hanging off in different ways. So you can go, I think you can go to South Africa, you can go to Hungary, you can go to private clinics in England, but you can certainly go to, to, to Asia to have a kind of refit job on the downstairs. Now, that raises questions about why we're so bloody frightened of our genitalia, our sexuality, and what it means that 12-year-old girls are already having 
uh, Brazilians when they haven't even got pubic hair. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting for reformulation of the body as though the body is a product that we have to make rather than the body somewhere we live from. You said in the beginning of fat as a feminist issue that, that, you know, that it's always a cultural thing, but it seems to me it's gone beyond individual cultures and become this sort of global. Um, where, where well, it's really interesting because I feel like we're, and it'd be very interesting to see what happens in New Zealand because you've got such a changing cultural story, don't you? But it, what it felt like to me when I went to China and saw these enormous billboards of Western women selling the clothes that are made in Chinese factories back to Chinese women um, is that I felt, oh, I see, we're losing bodies as fast as we're losing languages. There's going to be only one global body. The brand of woman is going to look, not by the clothes that we're branded by, but the shape that we're branded by. And it's a shape that varies between Barbie-esque or, um, or very, 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 very skinny. I guess Barbie is very skinny. But um, I think there's a kind of slight fight back going on. Not against the size, but against the aesthetic from the from Asia, which is saying we've got our own aesthetic. We're gonna we're going to make uh, contact lenses with which change the shape of your eyes to make them like babies. You so you've got big purple pupils and, and googly looks. And so there's there is some kind of negotiation going on within this aesthetic landscape. But I do think we are losing bodies very, very fast. Losing bodies. I mean, one of the facts that stuck in my mind was um, what happened to girls in Fiji in 1995 when they first got television. Yeah, this was an amazing piece of work by a colleague from Harvard, an anthropologist. Uh, Fiji got one, one, tam one channel television and showing things like Friends, I guess was the, for the program in those days, and within three years, I think it was 12.9% yes. of the girls were over the toilet bowl, um, throwing up because they wanted to have the bodies of the, girl, of the young women they saw in Friends and the other shows. Now, that's people say ads don't matter, visual culture doesn't matter. It does matter. And what was really interesting about the Fiji result was that the... The young women on interview said they did this because it was a mark of modernity. They wanted to join the modern world. They didn't experience this as a site of oppression. They experienced this as a real plus, that they could have a modern version, if you like, of foot binding, only in this case it would be throwing up, and that they would then take their place in the global brand of women. So that's been taken even further, hasn't it? So that now young women assume that their body is something they can alter. Oh, it's and totally malleable. I mean, mm. I was watching um, uh, some YouTube videos of that have something like 24 million viewers of how to make up your face so you look like Miley Cyrus or Barbie or whoever you want. And there, there are these women who instruct you on how to do that. But at six or seven, and I hope it's not happening here, but it's certainly happening in London and, and New York, 
There are plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery apps for 10 and 11-year-olds that six-year-olds are playing with. And they already know how to Photoshop their pictures. They don't think there's anything odd about that. No, and they, so they see their bodies as very provisional, but not in a, a sense that I think, oh, yes, well, we're living in a women's body, but we can express ourselves however we want. No, it's about the surface of the body being totally provisional so that I can have any kind of body that I want. And that is the idea. It's not that the body is something that you extend it, you run, you stretch, you feel good in it. It's, it's about building a body so that you can then feel safe because the underlying thing is you don't feel safe in your body. And so you structure it, but also it's sort of become fun to restructure your body. It's become a normal, you know, it's as, as normal yes, as, no, I as mean, women, older women coloring their hair. It's correct. Just, you know, I it's, mean, I'm told that I am so old-fashioned for being a 70s feminist because I won't do all of those things. Like, what's the matter with you? You know, this is, some, <laughs> this is some kind of um, mm. fetish of 70s feminists rather than... than uh, but to me, it isn't actually fun because it's really quite deadly. Yes. These, these things are speaking to the fact that by the, age, by the age of six, girls are already feeling insecure in their bodies, and it's happening with boys. Not only are they being asked at school, they're by BMI and being told they're eat, eating too much or they're eating too little, but they're growing up in an environment in which there's so much preoccupation in the family. There's been so much pressure on women that the very early parts, the very early experience of life in the bonding in the may involve the transmission of a distressed body yes. from the mother to the daughter. And this is not to blame mums at all, but we've got the examples, I'm sure you have them too, of you must have seen the pictures of the French justice minister who four days after giving birth walked into the Elysee Paris as though she'd never, ever had a baby. Or Victoria Beckham saying, I ran, you know, 10 miles a day after, or I don't maybe it wasn't 10 miles a day, but she ran consistently after having a baby, as though having a baby is some kind of disability, having a post-pregnancy body, yeah. as opposed to you're supposed to be actually getting to know your body again and this infant that you've brought into the world. You're meant to be engaging and discovering how your body can feed that body and feed your own body. But the whole ideology around it has really changed. I think you need to correct it. You need to correct to... it. And if you're in Brazil, you get a tummy tuck at the same time because you don't usually give vaginal birth if you're in Brazil. You have a caesarean. Mm. And that's normal. Completely normal. It's become quite fashionable other places too, hasn't it? Yes. But it's it has interesting medical implications because you don't get the antibacterial wash if you don't go through the vaginal passage. I mean, they're very, very troubling things that we're finding out about if you don't need to have a cesarean. I, I made a note about the, the, the parenting thing, and the, you write quite a lot about the, the connection of the infant with the mother. And, and or the mother person, the mothering person, doesn't have yeah. to be the mother qua mother. Well, the, the, yes, the caregiver. But um, I mean, I particularly noted things that, that were relevant to me, maybe, and related to other things in this festival. I noted um, kangaroo care yes. that you talk about at one point, and it resonated with me because my daughter had preemie babies and did kangaroo care with them, and it's fantastic. If, if people don't know, it's the naked baby on your naked body, and the, the baby and the mother or father is, or 
caregiver wrapped up together. And but, you're, what I learned from you that I didn't know, I mean, I knew about the, the, the bonding and the, and the ease with breastfeeding. I didn't know about the body temperature thing. That's interesting. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating that, is that what was discovered is that the, the, the body that the baby is carried against can thermoregulate the baby's body. So that if the baby's too hot, the mother's or the father's or whoever's body cools down to cool down the baby's body or vice versa, which is not something you can do in a, um, in the same way in an incubator with that kind of precision. So the, the body is being created literally. Its thermoregulatory capacities are literally being created in that relationship, mm. which is, of course, what happens when mothers carry babies anyway. Mm. They're not preemies. Yeah. So that mother, the mothering and, or the parenting, the caregiving at the beginning is very important in terms of the, the infant's perceptions about its own body. And yes, the whole... And, I try to contrast that with what happens if you're a wild child and you grow up without the body of a human to snuggle into. And I was looking at the case of Jean Daveron, who at the age of, we think he was around 10 or 11, was brought into a household and he'd grown up among the animals. So he didn't have human characteristics. And I was trying to make the argument that the human body is made in human culture in a human relationship. And his body wasn't made in human culture, it was made in the culture of the wild. And to talk about thermoregulation, when he saw snow, he threw off the clothes that he had been dressed in by the family that had taken him in and ran into the snow because his body had the capacity to manage like the bodies of the animals who had fur. And I just find that so incredibly interesting because we've lost the notion of understanding that body-to-body -body relationships create the bodies that we have. And therefore, if we have disturbed bodies now at six, we need to be looking at what we're doing to the mums and the dads that's making it very hard for them to feel easy in their own bodies and the bodies that they bring to their offspring. I just want to mention in passing that that, that whole thing of the infant and the and kangaroo care and so on relates interestingly to a, a book by um, Elizabeth McCracken, who I'm chairing on Sunday afternoon. She wrote a marvellous memoir called An Exact Replica of a Figment of My Imagination, which is um, about um, giving birth to a stillborn child, and it is the most extraordinary memoir about um, parenting and bonding and grief and so on. Wonderful. Um, and also, um, a lot of people here in this audience will have read A Little Life by Hanyi and Anyihara, oh, of course. Amazing. And um, you talk about torture. I want to just, I want to show people this book as well. Body, is it really important that you read Bodies, which I think is not as well known as that as a feminist issue. But you also, I mean, torture and things like that are in there and self-harm. You talk about self-harm, which of course is so important in that novel, in, in Bodies. Um, can we just mention that in passing? We've got a lot of other things we've got to cover yet, but I suppose I was trying to if if what I was trying to theorize is how we get a body. We have right. the, we have. I I think most people will accept the psychoanalytic notion that you actually acquire a mind. You don't be born with a mind. You have to acquire it, and you acquire it in relationship. But I don't think we've understood that about bodies. We think bodies just are. And this book is all about how we acquire a body and the forms in which we acquire our own sense of our bodies. And 
what I'm talking about really is the difficulties that people have in their forms of embodiment, the distress they carry, the anguish, the sorrow, the search for a body. You might want to look at anorexia as a way to do away with a body that isn't okay and create a body that you can admire, for example, a body that has no needs, no appetites, or not that you don't feel them, but you override them. And self-harming, I've tried to discuss in the way of a way to make real, to make material, the thing that feels so absent and yet so present and so mysterious. And if you cut through self-harm, you actually see the blood. You feel something which you may not be able to feel in another kind of way. Is that what you're asking? Yes, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's really complex. And I, mean, I think one of the things you also offer, obviously, through your work, but also in the backs of the books and so on, is, is help for people. There are, there are exercises, there are things you can try and do for yourself. This little book on eating is this marvelous, simple, but incredibly significant guide to eat, how to eat sensibly, basically. So you, you. Pleasurably, actually. Pleasurably, yes. <laughs> Passionately. Sometimes. So you, I mean, you, you, you not only understand it, but you help individuals to understand. I do, themselves. but it's only a very small part of my work. Actually, Is that, yes. yeah. I mean, I think the tragic thing about Fifi being forty years old or nearly is that people used to come in to therapy with an eating problem. Now people just come into therapy with any problem and take for granted that they have an eating or body image problem and don't expect to get through it. That is a real change. So for them it's normal to have it and they'll have it all their life. Yeah, completely normal. And that's really why I wrote Bodies, because people coming in about bereavement or job problems or issues at home with kids or all the kinds of things that people come to psychotherapy, psychoanalysis for. And en passant would say something about body hatred. And with the assumption that this is just something they had to live with, rather than now, that, what kind of craziness have we got in the culture that, that we it's think sort we of have, normal? Yeah, mm-hmm. that we've normalised it. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit more about your work because you've done these marvelous um, BBC. Um, what do we call them? In therapy. In therapy. Um, if, if any of you want to listen to them, you can just. I, I got them simply by um, going into the BBC. Um, BBC website. Radio Four. Yeah. Put in therapy. Just in. put, oh, I just put all bark, I think. Just, yes, just put you in and it comes up. And there are these marvelous sessions where, where in fact they are scripted and use actors, but you would They're never know. They're not scripted. Know. They're not scripted. And no. not, not what they say is not scripted. No, oh, nothing scripted. I they, knew your bit wasn't, but no, I thought the actor. Okay, oh, so here's, I wanted to convey, um, the feel of the consulting room. Yeah, which the you do. The intimacy incredibly. of the therapy session. Because it's so, it's got such an incredible aesthetic. It's so moving. And it can be banal, but it's usually so moving and profound. And also the banal bits are interesting, particularly to a therapist. Um, I didn't know how to do it, really. I tried to do it in a book called The Impossibility of Sex by telling stories from the therapist's point of view, from an imaginary therapist called Susie, who has imaginary, who, who's an idealized version of me, and, um, and imaginary clients, patients, and Alessandre. 
So I did that about, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. And um, a producer at the BBC read the book and said, let's, let's make some radio programs. And we got a bunch of actors and a really superb theatre director, Ian Rickson, who actually I think was recently here, um, who prepped some actors. I just gave them, I gave them the following sort of information. Um, give me a woman who does, who didn't grow up in England and who's, um, perhaps suffering an immigration, emigration story. That's Harriet who you're talking about. Right. Give me a trade unionist in his 60s who's got two failed marriages, who's come up to retirement. Give me a couple who are, um, having, um, Difficulties in their relationship, which might mirror the history of their own parents' relationship. And they're about to have their first child. Yeah, but I didn't know that. You didn't know that. So the people come into the room. I mean, obviously not all together, but the couple can. And they come in, and they're already having a fight on the doorstep, basically. And I, I pretend to have known them for six or eight sessions by now. And they're about to have a baby. And they're having a hassle, and I'm there to do a session to try and sort it out. And then we go on to another, the next day we have another session, not with them, but with the woman who it turned out was not, had had a bereavement. She wasn't just a, an immigrant, but had, had, had come from somewhere else. And the bereavement she has in the present mirrored issues about her previous losses. Etc. Etc. Mm. But you listen to them. So you tell me what you thought because oh, I know what they felt like to me, but I don't know what they felt like to you. Well, I didn't realise that when I started listening that they were actors at all. Um, once I found out they were actors, I thought the actors must have had a script, and you were responding to what the actors gave you. But well, was, I was, but I well, didn't know what it was. Well, it was a. A brilliant dynamic going on because you don't realize that they're actors at all. Um, what I found fascinating, because you're listening, not seeing anything, was the silences. And as you said to me when we were talking at the back, that the radio held the silences. Well, it was and very brave of the Radio 4 mm. to do that. I mean, the producer doesn't know anything about therapy. Mm. And... I think it was quite scary for him to have silences, mm. but they worked. And um, I think people thought it's a very different way of listening to story. It's a very different way of understanding emotional struggles. What I also was very aware of listening was of you waiting. And I, I had the sense, I mean, I could imagine that you were watching these people or this person, observing their body language, and that you needed to wait. And I thought, this therapist just waits, waits until the right moment either to speak or just waits until they speak. So you do, as a therapist, a lot of waiting and observing. It's a very active engagement, though, and I don't even know that we've got the right word for it because Mm. you're right, it does look like it's waiting, but what you're doing is you're both in that... You're attempting to be in the same emotional space as the other. So you're surrendering a part of yourself. But at the same time, there's another part of you that's observing, theorizing, without even knowing you're doing it, so that you can find a way to build a bridge towards the person. So, and hear what they're saying, 
underneath what they're saying or what they're not saying. So I think you're doing a lot in that thing that you call waiting, which I agree, I, we, is a waiting, but it's a, it's it's very, a very attentive, ref, yes. it's a very mm. attentive mm. reflection. Can, can we just mention, John, because the, the guy in his, in his 60s with two failed marriages, you can guess what happens, and Susie has just told me that she said to the producers, don't let him have a crush on me. <laughs> And of course, very early, and if this is this is an actor just doing it as it comes, he it's absolutely heartrending, and I found myself going, "Oh no, oh no," because he he declares his love. He's fallen in love with Susie, <laughs> which of course happens is part of what could happen in a therapy. But you know, it's not where you stop; it's the starting point. Anything in therapy is the starting point. I had it did have a sense that. It was quite a difficult thing for you to deal with as a therapist. Oh, it's in absolute way it's... hell because, look, the director was directing the actors, but he had to direct me without directing me. Mm. So he could only direct me by hyping up the stories that the actors were going to have. So I had no... I mean, I, I thought, oh, I'm sure there'll be some kind of a flirt, you know, and it'd be over and done with. But no, it's, it was an absolutely full-on emotional assault, desire. I want to take this relationship out of the therapy room into real life. And, you know. I need to be with you all the time because mm. you've really understood me. Yes, of course I've understood you. We're sitting in this room. I'm not your wife. I'm not your partner. I mean, I had to find ways to hold on to what we were doing together as being the value. And we're doing a second series, and he will be coming back. <laughs> I think you're both brave. <laughs> but, um, we need to tell you that that is going to become a book. Yeah, it's called In Therapy, and it'll be out in November. It's, so what we've done is we've taken the annotated script, and we've taken the scripts, and then I've annotated them to say why I said what I said at that time or to have reflections on the meaning of this. You know, I've got a 30-year-old in there who doesn't know who she is, even though she's very successful and being very good in school and all of those kind of things. And I wanted to talk about the kinds of dilemmas for young people and what's being foisted on this generation of young women who look like they have it all but don't feel like they do. So it's got, it's got commentary both about the social circumstances of the people that I'm seeing and, and what's going on in global culture as well as the psychoanalytic interventions that I make and so, why I make them. Yeah, so she's the lawyer, a very she's successful lawyer, lawyer yeah. who, who presents as very successful. But it has absolutely, completely has no idea who she is. So that She's a complete construction. Mm. Of course she isn't because she has all of those things but they're not experienced as attributes or integral to herself. They're just experienced as things she can do rather than living inside of her. They haven't mm. folded inside of her. So there's going to be fascinating material in there for... I think so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. Great. And the second series? We're going to have... I think we've been given ten. So some so of these what, will come back and some so of them will be five new. Because there's only five in the series. Yeah, so. there are five in this series. So I think our couple's coming back. And I think John, who's had the crush, is coming back. And Harriet's coming back, the oh, one yeah. who you were very moved by. Oh, the Harriet is the one who's... IVF has failed, and um, she's separated from her partner, her husband, and suddenly her life doesn't look any way 
how she expected her life to look, and it was, you know, she was a particularly good actress. I think it was incredibly she's she's moving. Playing, she's um, I cho- well, we chose actors. I didn't choose them, but I said I didn't want anybody known. No. So these are mostly stage actors. She's actually the star of Harry Potter. I mean, she's uh, which is opening in London oh. in June. So um, she will be very well known by then. Yeah, it was certainly brilliant. Um, just a couple more things before we... Th- we're going to uh, leave plenty of time for questions because I'm sure you would love to ask Susie things. I want to make sure that I haven't missed anything. I, I did make a note about... Um, we didn't really go into the, into the industries very much. I wrote down here, the food industry, diet industry, style and fashion, cosmetic surgery, and the pharmaceutical companies and the media. All of those huge very big industries. corporate industries are really all... big. They're not small. They're not trivial. I don't know whether you have the same phenomena here, but what I've been interested in seeing in the department stores is that where you used to have a small section for makeup, there are now like a whole floor. And Mm. I imagine in 20 years, the whole basement floor will be for men's grooming and makeup. Because how do you, how do you increase your spend by increasing the amount? How do you increase your profit by increasing the amount of product that you have to have by increasing your age groups so that, you know, there's children's makeup and old ladies makeup and by extending your reach to countries that didn't do those things. How do you increase your sales in the, in the food industry? Well, you segment all the foods. You make good foods, bad foods, naughty foods, nice foods, organic foods. I mean, and we all know about agribusiness. You're so progressive here. You don't need me to tell you anything about what goes on. But all of these industries are trying to, are increasing their profits by selling us more and more stuff that some of which is non-food, particularly in the food industry. I mean, by creating bliss points that are just full of chemicals and salts and sugars that are, are crunches that, that are addicting rather than um, nourishing. Um, but the fashion industry, I mean, we think of it as being tiny. It's absolutely huge. Some of the people on the top, the richest people in the world are in, own the fashion and, and cosmetic industries. And we need to think about the women who are making those clothes in Cambodia or Vietnam or Bangladesh and the way in which those dyes are ruining the water supplies in those countries and how fast fashion is not just stealing the lives of our youngsters who feel they can't get into the latest fashion and therefore feel okay enough, but it's affecting the women who are making those clothes in countries that we're absolutely exploiting. It's, it's absolutely devastating. It's all doing. about capitalism. It's all about Vulture making capitalism, money. Vulture capitalism, I think. Vul- yeah. yes. Can I please ask you to thank Susie Orbach. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.